because some of the instruction is actually not that good. Like, maybe you don't even know a whole lot, but you're like, I know enough to know that that's bad advice. You know, the, uh, a little while ago, I was uh, doing some research to learn a bit more about leadership skills and things like that, and uh, somehow that ended up with my uh, Instagram uh, feed being filled with little like, here's some great leadership tips, and you know, some of them weren't bad, but uh, th there were some where I'm just like, oh, that is awful. Like there was one who said, here's, here's a great leadership tip for you. When you're walking through the hallway or you're walking through a crowd, don't make eye contact with anyone. Walk straight ahead and wait for them to get out of your way. Because that way they'll know that you're a really important person and when you tell them to do something, they're more likely to do it. Now, if we have even our young kids in this room, like, right, does that sound like a good leader? No. But the reality is there's this kind of you know, ego, this self-centeredness that is baked into just about everything these days, isn't it? A, a kind of, I am the most important person in the room and I need everybody else to know it. And it just runs rampant in just about anything. And, and I'm wondering, how difficult is it for all of us, whatever our field is, whatever our life consists of, whether you're a student or whether you're raising a family or you're in work, like how much of the model of success that is presented to you involves you got to look out for yourself and put yourself first? Now, there's obviously a balance with prioritizing needs and all that, but I'm talking specifically about this kind of self-centeredness that says, my interests are above everybody else's. And if you've ever been in contact with someone who really lets that run rampant in your lives, you know how, just how destructive that can be. What are the steps that you are expected? If you were to lay them out, here's what I have to do to be successful in whatever it is I have. What? What, to what degree does that involve really being selfish? Putting your needs ahead of others. And it really begs the question, how do we live rightly? You know, we're all trying to learn. None of us are really like expert experts. We're all trying to learn and we're all trying to grow. And we've got to filter this stuff out. You'll get this toxic assumption of self-centeredness out of the recipe book. So how do we live rightly without falling into those worn ruts that have been carved out ahead of us for being self-centered is just the way to go. That's what success looks like. Well, that's the question our story in Daniel is going to address today. Uh, if you've got a Bible, you can open up to the book of Daniel. Uh, we are in chapter 5 today. Daniel chapter 5, I'll also have the words up on the screen, Daniel chapter 5, fifth chapter of Daniel. The thing with Daniel is that it takes place at the dawning of a new age of egoism. See, at this point in history, uh, Babylon has emerged as one of the first great superpowers in the world. Now, there have been kings and rulers for thousands of years preceding that, but all of a sudden we're getting to the stage where he's not, you know, the Babylonians, they're not just kings, they're kings of kings. 
They rule over other kingdoms. They, they're amassing power and success to a degree which has not been seen on the earth before that period. And Daniel is one of those guys who lives his entire adult life with a front row seat to all of that. He was a... Uh, advisor during the time of King Nebuchadnezzar. And we already been following through some of the great exploits and Nebuchadnezzar is just that guy who's like, he has that ego down pat, right? Like he knows the world revolves around him because in a sense it does. He is the most important person on the planet. But where we come into our story today, all the spotlight, it's not on Nebuchadnezzar, it's on the new rising star, King Belshazzar. If Nebuchadnezzar was the king of yesterday, then Belshazzar is the king of today and tomorrow. Everything about this guy points to an even brighter and more successful future. He is heading into his reign. Our story picks up what we think is probably at the beginning of his reign. Uh, he's already wealthy beyond imagination, already has success. He knows how to indulge lavishly. He throws a good party. Because if you're young and you basically control the world, that's pretty easy, isn't it? But don't get me wrong, he's no slacker either. He understands his family business. Uh, most scholars think that he was probably the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, and so he not only has this connection to you know, the, the family he grew up in, but he also knows some of the scandalous family secrets, some of which I'm going to tell you about later on, just not right now. He also understands the spiritual significance of his role. He employs a vast uh, you know, retinue of uh, spiritual mystics and wise men and seers who, you know, who help him guide. Because again, in, the, in this worldview, he is the closest thing to a god a human can be. And he very much understands that he is responsible for working his kingdom in uh, collaboration with what the gods decree. So he takes this stuff very seriously. And in our story today, we're going to look at this bizarre and mysterious incident that happened one night that will forever define his career. And from that, take some wisdom on what it means for us in terms of self-centeredness. If we start off right at the beginning of Daniel chapter 5, the king invites you to a party. We read in verse 1, the king Belshazzar had a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine in their presence. Under the influence of the wine, Belshazzar gave orders to bring in the gold and silver vessels that his predecessor Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and the nobles and the wives and concubines could drink from them. So they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles drank the wine and praised their gods made of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. That's a party. 
Some scholars think that this may have been an actual coronation party. This is him kicking off the beginning of a bright future. And to just let that ego play out a little bit, he's like, let's bring in some of that treasure that my predecessor, you know, Grandfather Nebuchadnezzar brought in, just to assert a little bit. These, these sacred items that were taken, we just use them as party favors now. That's a power move. And everyone celebrates at this party how great this king is and how great his gods are. But then the weird thing happens. Verse 5, at that moment, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and began writing on the plaster of the king's palace wall next to the lampstand. As the king watched the hand that was writing, his face turned pale, and his thoughts so terrified him that he soiled himself, and his knees knocked together. This is unexpected at a party. You can just imagine that this scene, all of a sudden they're looking over and there's a, uh, I don't know if it's just the fingers or the hand itself, it's a disembodied hand scratching words into the walls. That's pretty horrifying, isn't it? Well, if it's scary for you and me, it's even scarier for Babylonians, because I mentioned already, they take this spiritual stuff really seriously. And I, I was trying to think about this earlier, and I, I feel like this would be maybe similar to how we would understand like a national crisis today. If you've ever like, you know, checked out history or stuff like that, where you're like, what, are the, what happened in like the 24 hours uh, following a major national disaster, and you can, you can track it like, okay, at hour one, this is what happened. Hour two, here's who met. At hour three, here's the, you know, the, the follow-up report. And like, you can see this play-by-play, and that's exactly how the story is going to unfold. So I, I just want you to imagine like the clock has been hit, and like the time is running. We need to do something fast, because this is a big deal. All eyes are on Belshazzar. The gods have sent you a message, and you better not mess it up. The clock is running. So as you can imagine, the first thing he does, even though he's in the middle of a party, he calls for his guys. He says in verse 7, The king shouted, Bring in the mediums, Chaldeans, the diviners. He said to the the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this inscription and gives me its interpretation will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain around his neck and have the third highest position in the kingdom. So all the king's wise men came in, but none of them could read the inscription or make its interpretation known to him. And King Belshazzar became even more terrified. His face turned pale and his nobles are bewildered. You can imagine what that's like, where he you know, summons all his guys to come in and bring in him an answer. What do we do? We need a play. And you can imagine, like, we'll see it, like, you know, they've got the police tape around the writing, clear everyone out from the party. He's bringing his experts, they're studying it. Maybe they've got their reference books, and he's there waiting for the report of what to do. And maybe he's, you can imagine, like, sitting at the table waiting, and, and they all come back one by one and put down, here's my answer. And one after another is, I don't know what this means, and I don't know what you need to do about it. Every single one. A pressure is mounting. He needs to do something, and his guys came up 
empty for him. All the king's horses and all the king's men, right? Couldn't make sense of it. And it looks like we're at a very dire crossroads. But just then, someone happens by with a tip. Go to verse 10. Because of the outcry of the king and his nobles, the queen, or the queen mother, we're not exactly sure, uh, came to the banquet hall and said, May the king live forever, she said. Don't let your thoughts terrify you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has a spirit of the holy gods in him. In the days of your predecessor, he was found to have insight, intelligence, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods. Your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, mediums, Chaldeans, and diviners. Your own predecessor, the king, did this because Daniel, the one the king named Belteshazzar, it's a different name, not Belshazzar, was found to have an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and intelligence, and the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems. Therefore, summon Daniel, and he will give you the interpretation. Just before the case runs cold, there's one lead left to follow. Now, because we you know Daniel was, you know, his job was to be this kind of spiritual advisor, and he wasn't one of the ones summoned. Some commentators think that this maybe was much later in the story where, you know, maybe Daniel's in a state of semi-retirement. You know, maybe he's you know, living off by himself right now. He's, he's not on the job anymore, but he's still around. And so you can imagine uh, as Belshazzar is watching that clock run down, says, get Daniel here now. Nebuchadnezzar trusted him. He's our best shot. And so last chance Daniel comes in. And I, and I love this, this picture. In my head, it's kind of like, you know, old man Daniel walking onto the scene there with the king. You know, he's had a party and then a very late night trying to work through this. Maybe it's like 3 a.m. or something like that. Here comes Daniel. And the king gives him the situation. In verse 13, Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you, Daniel, one of the Judean exiles that my predecessor, the king, brought from Judah? I've heard that you have a spirit of the gods in you, and that insight, intelligence, and extraordinary wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men and mediums were brought before me to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, but they could not give its interpretation. However, I have heard about you, that you can give the interpretations and solve problems. Therefore, if you can read this inscription and give me its interpretation, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain around your neck and have the third highest position in the kingdom. An offer he couldn't refuse, right? For a guy like Belshazzar, that's a natural lure, right? I like power. You want power? I like wealth. Everybody's got to love wealth. Well, it doesn't really phase Daniel very much. Have you ever felt pressure like that? Your clock is running out. You need to move. You need to act. You're down to your last straw. That's Belshazzar right now. What you gonna do? Here's Daniel's answer. He's gonna give him a conditional acceptance. 
Verse 17, then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts and give your rewards to someone else. Well, that's not a good answer for Belshazzar. However, I will read the inscription for the king and make the interpretation known to him. This final lead might just pay off. So Daniel's going to give him a translation, but first, he's got a preamble. He's got some words to say. He's going to remind him. Remember I mentioned there was that family secret Hey, Daniel's going to air out some laundry right now. He's going to tell him about that thing that happened that you guys don't talk about very much. Verse 18. Your Majesty, the Most High God gave sovereignty, greatness, glory, and majesty to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. He's been mentioned a lot in this story, hasn't he? Because of the greatness he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages were terrified and fearful of him. He killed anyone he wanted and kept alive anyone he wanted. He exalted anyone he wanted and humbled anyone he wanted. But when his heart was exalted and his spirit became arrogant, he was deposed from his royal throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven away from people, and his mind was like an animal's. He lived with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with dew from the sky until he acknowledged that the Most High God is ruler over human kingdoms and sets anyone he wants over them. The tragedy of Nebuchadnezzar the wise. So powerful, so all-powerful, could keep people alive, could kill who he wanted. And proud as anything, self-centered as anything, and God brought him low. Drove him out. Don't exactly know all the details, but it's the kind of thing that people who love success don't like to talk about. A great man with a great fall. He was humbled until he could acknowledge that God is supreme. And Daniel's going to make a connection point here. Verse 22. But you, his successor Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. Listen to this. Even though you knew all of this. In fact, that's true. If you actually look back in Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar's like, I'm writing this down, this thing that happened to me, so people will know that you don't try and play ego with God. And Belshazzar knew all of this. Instead, verse 23, you have exalted yourself against the Lord of the heavens. The vessels from his house were brought to you, and as you and your nobles, wives, and concubines drank wine from them, you praised the gods made of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or understand, 
but you have not glorified the God who holds your life breath in his hand and who controls the whole course of your life. You want to underline one verse? That is the verse to underline in this story. You have not glorified the God who holds your life breath in his hand and who controls the whole course of your life. Therefore, he has sent the hand and the writing. You knew all of this. You knew what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. And in fact, Nebuchadnezzar's not even the first. There's a lot. You know, you check history, there's a lot. Even in that day, there's a lot of proud people who are brought low. There's a lot of kings who thought they had the world until it was all taken away from them. Do you know how many monarchs and emperors and rulers God has seen raise themselves up only to lose it all because they can't take it with them. And Daniel's here saying, you're playing the proud game. God's got a long list of ex-rulers who are dead and a blank space to write your name. You have failed to honor him who holds your life in his hands. Here's the translation of the riddle. David speaks this in verse 25. This is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the message. Mene means that God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel means that you have been weighed on the balance and found deficient. Peres means that your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. This is the message that God has sent to you. Mene, your time is up. That clock ticking, that's ticking for you. Tekel. Your life has been weighed, and in God's eyes, you are bankrupt. You're out of cash, nothing else. Paris, someone is already in place to inherit all the things you think you own. And you can imagine in that instance, Daniel speaking, these are like crazy words to speak to the most powerful man in the world. But Daniel's telling him exactly what the truth that God had sent to him, that he asked to hear. And you imagine all eyes are turning to Belshazzar. What's he going to do? What's he going to do with this bizarre incident that happened at this coronation party? How do you backtrack from a life built around self-centeredness? How do you turn course when everything about his philosophy, everything about his business plan, everything about his success is built on this idea of, I'm not the guy who bows down. I'm not the guy who does humility. So we wonder, will he, like his grandfather, be able to humble himself and acknowledge God's supremacy? Well, based on what he says next, it doesn't sound like much changes in him. We're all watching Belshazzar now, right? Maybe there's a pause. Finally, he opens his mouth and 
Belshazzar gives the order, verse 29. They clothe Daniel in purple, place a gold chain around his neck, and issue a proclamation concerning him that she should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And I can't help but wonder if that's the equivalent of saying, take your check and go home. Take your money. He didn't seem to listen very well to Daniel when he said he doesn't want those things, and I highly doubt he was listening and chose to act on the fact that he had an obligation to humble himself as a result. And, and you feel like everyone's waiting. Everyone's waiting, like, what is this message from the gods? And what do you have to do, Belshazzar? It's your turn to act. It's your turn to respond. And it just comes down to give this guy some money. We're done here. Verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom at the age of 62. Another name is added to that long list of proud kings who were ruined by their own self-centeredness. He wasn't the first, and he won't be the last. Some scholars even suggest that, it, you know, it's difficult to account how all these different reports, but some, some suggest that, you know, at this time, while this is taking place, there are assassins who are making their way through the waterways who are going to assassinate the king that very night. Like, don't know for sure how it all fits up, but you get this sense of, like, this is your moment. This is your opportunity. It's going, it's going, it's gone. Now, you and I may not be kings, but this story has a particular weight for lives like yours and mine, does it not? Particularly what it says about our own struggle with selfishness. How easy it is to live life with that kind of default. What puts my interest first is the way that I've got to go. It's only natural. Everybody does it. Why not me? And, and I wonder if there's a, a sense where we, we need to slow down with a story like this and wonder, what, what does this self-centeredness say about the conflicts that you and I find ourselves in? What are the things that really get us upset what goes on inside us when we don't get our way and someone else does? Again, we may not be kings, but I think, you know, if you and I are really honest, we, we have a lot in common with a guy like Belshazzar when it doesn't go the way we want it, whatever it is. Now, this is a bizarre story, and, I, and one of the things that I, I, I've been encouraged to do is a good practice. Whenever you come to something really weird in the Old Testament, is you try and find something in the New Testament that helps clarify it. Because if like Paul or Jesus is teaching on it, like that's probably a good place to start. And so I, I was amazed because I had never seen this before. Uh, but I, I was asking that question like, is there any kind of parallel to the New Testament and how the the early church or in Jesus and his ministry would teach that? And I came across this. Uh, this parable in Luke 12. Um, we're going to put that up on the screen. Um, now again, there are no kings in this story. But here's, l listen to what, uh, 
what happens when someone comes to Jesus with a question. In verse 13, someone from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Okay, he's got a family member who's cheated him of what belongs to him. And Jesus turns and answers and says, Friend, he said to him, who appointed me to be a judge or arbiter over you? He then told them, watch out and be on your guard against all greed because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. Sound a little bit familiar there? And then he told them a parable. A rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I will do this, he said. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods there. And I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. You see it? But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life is demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Wow. This, that's how it is when, with one who stores up treasure for himself, but is not rich toward God. Again, no kings in the story but Jesus seems to draw a very strong parallel with what Belshazzar experienced and what you and I experience when we get in fights with people over stuff. What does Jesus consider foolish? We don't find that word on his lips very often. What does Jesus consider foolish? Thinking you can build anything on self-centeredness without eventually losing it all. I've mentioned already that this is so prevalent everywhere we go. Like, it just runs so deep. And, and I really think there's legitimacy to that question of, like, what is our hope? We're doing our best here to learn, and this stuff is, like, poured into us, unfiltered from the world around us. It springs up naturally from bone, sin within our hearts. Where is that? Like, how do we not all end up like Belshazzar, having a warning and walking away from it? No change. We've got no kingdom, but we're, we feel the weight of exile ourselves, don't we? we? We don't even have the resources at our disposal like he did. Well, like many things, the gospel that we celebrate is a gospel of great reversals. Just as Jesus died unjustly an innocent man, a horrible event, the worst event in history, yet at the same time, his death brought forgiveness to people like you and me who didn't deserve it. Something terrible became something that we celebrate. His death brought us life. His resurrection set us on firm ground. It's a reversal, an unexpected twist. And just like that, words of condemnation can also be words of hope. I want to go right back in Daniel, back to verse 23. And I want you to look at it with an eye for what does this say about 
who God is in relation to us. And I'll read it again for you. With that struggle fixed in your mind, what does this say about who our God is? Daniel speaking to Belshazzar, he says, you are not glorified. Okay, here's who God, the God who holds your life breath in his hands and controls the course of your life. Now that was bad news for Belshazzar, but that's good news for you and I, isn't it? The God who holds your life breath who directs the course of your life. That's good news for Daniel. He's been in exile his entire adult life. And I think that word is foundational to how he doesn't get swept away by all the ego that's permeating around him, all the self-centeredness that is just in the air everywhere. God holds my life. I'm not here because the Babylonians brought me in exile. I'm here because this is where God has placed me. I don't need to be afraid whatever comes. We know stuff is coming for Daniel. God's the one who holds my life. He's hanging on to my breath. He's putting the air in my lungs. I am in his hands regardless of where I am and regardless of my situation. How do you live rightly in the world that you're in today, in your path, your career, your education, whatever it is, how do you live without falling into the worn-out rut of self-centeredness? You escape the trap of self-centeredness by resting in the knowledge that God is the sustainer of your life. You are safe. You're safe. He's got you. He's holding you. He's protecting you. He's directing your path, directing your steps. That whole trap of self-centeredness really comes down to no one is looking out for me. So I've got to do it myself. We don't need to fall into that trap. Someone more capable than us is taking care of us. Now if we could stop the clock just in your own life, if you just you and Jesus are having a conversation and You've got that clock in the wall, and he just stops that clock for you. And he asks you, what's, what are you holding on to right now? What's the, what's the big thing that you're struggling with right now? How is it affecting your relationships? How is it affecting anxiety, or fear, or discontentment, or disappointment, or bitterness? Like, how are we doing right now? And, and I feel like the question he would follow that with is, do you know that I'm the one that holds on to your breath? That I'm the one that sustains your life? That I'm the one that directs the course of where you are? You think it's chance, you think it's fate, you think it's your own? Like, this is my plan that you're living out. Do you know that I'm holding on to you in what you're going through right now? From there, I think we can ask some questions about what do we do in light of this knowledge? I think a very obvious but maybe difficult one is, again, just to remind ourselves to refuse to let the love of material possessions 
become the source of our divisions. Like two people in a parable had a conflict, somebody wronged the other, and Jesus is like, that's not what I'm here to fix. I'm not here to help get you your stuff back. If your goal is to get the stuff at the expense of someone else, I'm not going to help you. I'll take care of you. But my gospel is way bigger than just giving you more stuff or getting you the stuff that you think you need. Be careful what you love. I was asked too, is there, is there some area in your life where you were trying to elicit or get something from someone, from a person or possession that ultimately can only come from God? Are you, we, we're all insecure, right? Like, there's those things we just don't want brought, like we've got our own kind of family secret thing where we don't like that being put on display. Is there stuff that we're, we're trying to get validation from someone, we're trying to get uh, approval from some way that is just not meant to be? We're trying to find a security that can only come from the knowledge that God's directing our life and he's sustaining us. And I also want to put a word, again, whether you're here in this room, watching online, maybe you're coming to this and you're like, I am Belshazzar in this story. I have lived my entire life looking out for myself. I have hurt people. I have let people down. I have burned bridges. And I feel like my clock is up. I've got no more time. What hope is there for me? If you feel that way, you don't need to be another name on the list. There is grace for you. There is an invitation. There is a place at his table to say, you can leave behind that life of looking out for yourself and come find rest in him. How do we live rightly without falling into the worn-out rut of self-centeredness? We escape the trap of self-centeredness by resting in the knowledge that God is the sustainer of our lives. He protects us. He preserves us. He directs our steps. If you need extra grace today, it's available. Let's pray. Father, as we sang this morning, riches we don't care for, we heed not, or man's empty praise. You are our treasure. You are our reward. We know we can't take anything else with us. Help us to find contentment in knowing we are your sons, we are your daughters. We are welcome at your table. Things come and things go. You have placed us in complex relationships and dynamics, and it is very hard at times to know how to navigate that. And we ask as a church that you would help filter out any sense of self-promotion that has caused harm to others. Help us to live like Daniel, even displaced, even far from home. I bet he missed his home so much throughout his entire life. Help us to know that wherever we are, we are safe with you. 
Change us however you need to change us. Transform us however you need to transform us. Humble us so that you can lift us up. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.